Our scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. <clears throat> Excuse me. So good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City Church. Uh, it's good to be uh, back with you. Some, many of you are aware, some of you may not be, that I have been on sabbatical for the past three months. And so uh, this is our first Sunday back. Uh, we were so eager, the Lord thought we needed another week, I guess, of uh, last Sunday being uh, as chaotic as it was. But let me just say first, thank you. Uh, I know that you're probably eager to hear, and everyone will have the question, how, how was the time away? It's, it's a difficult question to answer. I'll try as best I can uh, on, on an individual basis, but let me say publicly, it was a very helpful time away at great expense to many, and we're grateful, so let me say thank you. It was an opportunity for our family to experience your generosity and love and care for us, and that was a really big deal for us. And so again, thank you. I look forward to talking more about the lessons we learned, I think, as we go just throughout uh, preaching on a weekly basis in the weeks ahead. I'm thrilled <clears throat> this morning to start this series in Romans, and I got to tell you, I have high expectations because it is this book, more than any other in the Bible, that has changed the lives of men and women who've changed the world. Paul claims the gospel clearly articulated here in Romans is, this is verse 16, which we'll look at next week, the power of God, and that has proven true. Augustine the great church father was finally converted in the summer of 386 A.D. reading Romans. Martin Luther, the, uh, the Protestant reformer, then professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg, began to lecture in Romans in 1513. And by the time he was done with those lectures, two years later in 1515, the Protestant Reformation had been birthed. 200 years later... John Wesley attended a Moravian meeting in Aldersgate Street in London, and someone, just listen, just, just try to grasp this, okay? Someone began to read from Luther's preface to his commentary on the book of Romans, and as they read about justification by faith, Wesley was converted. Think about that. That's like the worst Bible study you've ever been at in your entire life, okay? It's not just reading someone's commentary, it's reading, reading someone's preface to the commentary on the book, and the power of God fell upon Wesley, and he was converted. So the doctrinal truths in this letter are so explosive that just reading about studying Romans has changed people's lives. And the stories go on and on, leading F.F. Bruce to say this. He said, there is no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter of the Roman, to the Romans. What happened to Augustine? Luther, Wesley, and others launched great spiritual movements with, which have left their mark on world history, but similar things have happened much more frequently to very ordinary men and women 
as the words of this letter came home to them with power, so, this is his words, he says, so, be prepared for the consequences. You have been warned. And so I'm excited for that reason. There's no saying what might happen when people begin to study this letter. It's kind of a once in a career thing for a pastor to be able to do this. And so it's, it's, I'm really looking forward to the next many, many weeks that we'll be doing this. Now this morning we need to get our bearings. This book uh, of Romans is considered Paul's theological masterpiece. It is supremely doctrinal, which is why a lot of Presbyterian type people really love it. Because we love that stuff. But I want you to see that Paul's goal is not understanding. Paul's goal is the life transformation of the people he's writing to. Romans, the gospel in Romans, changes lives. That's the point. So we're going to see uh, how the doctrinal, the doctrinal substance of what Paul has to teach us in this letter changes lives in three ways. It, give, it first produces what we're going to call the obedience of faith. It not only produces obedience, the obedience of faith, it produces a new motivation for obedience, which is for the sake of his name, and then it gives us a scope that's bigger than what we would normally, you know, take on for ourselves. It is the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. So you can see we're really going to be honing in on verse 5 there and just exegeting that one phrase. And so let's just start then with this first point that the goal of doctrine is not knowledge, it's obedience. Or what Paul calls in verse 5 there, you'll see the obedience of faith. He says, through whom? We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, it's interesting, the same phrase, if you have a Bible, uh, it would be really great to bring that as we're, as we're doing this together because we can jump around a little bit. But if you have a Bible, you want to turn to the very, very end of the book of Romans to verse 26 of chapter 16. You'll notice there that the same exact phrase uh, is brought out again. So in, in 16.26, Paul says that the gospel has now been disclosed and made known to all nations. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith. And so there's that phrase again. Now, biblical scholars call this an inclusio. It's a rhetorical device. And so if you've ever been given advice about public speaking, you know, typical, uh, you know, public speaking 101 class in, in, um, in college would be something like this. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them. And then what? Tell them what you told them. Right? And that's kind of the thing. And that's exactly what you see here. Paul, in, in verse 5 of chapter 1, is going to tell us what he's about to tell us. In 1626, he tells us what he's told us, which means that everything in between, those two, those, they're like bookends. And they tell us what everything in between is about. So at the beginning and at the end, Paul says, my goal in all of this is the obedience of faith, which means the whole book is really about us becoming people that are obedient, that are obedient to the voice of the Lord. Romans is a a theological masterpiece. However, we get it wrong if we approach the book as if it were just theology. Paul's goal is not just right doctrine. It's right behavior. And let me put it another way. A seminary professor of mine, Dr. John Frame, is famous for saying that all theology is application. He's a professor of systematic theology at RTS, or he was for many years, uh, beginning when I was there. But he would begin all of his systematic theology courses with the reminder that theology, in his mind, is a practical dis discipline, not a theoretical discipline. That theology, again, his words, is the application of the word of God to all of life. So according to Dr. Frame, you can't do theology without application. And anytime you're trying to apply the teachings of the Bible to your life in specific ways, you're doing theology. So get this. I want you to just get, think of it this way. Sitting around the fire smoking pipes, debating fine theological points about the order of God's decrees... That's like theology 101. That's the beginning, beginner level stuff. 
That's the introduct introductory course. The master's level stuff has more to do with learning how the doctrine affects your life, how the doctrine of propitiation makes you a more forgiving person. About the connection between the doctrine of what, what it means that we're called sons and daughters of God and the practice of prayer or the implication of total depravity, that big doctrinal, total depravity and the implication of that for marriage and parenting. That's the master's level courses. Now, I'm old enough to remember this strange phenomenon called a Christian bookstore. I can't say that I'm sad they've gone out of existence. I think they did more harm to Christianity than good, to be honest, in some ways. But if you ever walked into a store, and I assume it's this way on Amazon now as well, the books were always arranged into different sections. There's a theology section, and it was really small because only pastors went and looked at those books. And then there's what they called the Christian living section. Does this, make, does this ring a bell? And... Uh, and so it's a, it's a, it's a mistake uh, to, to, to separate those two things, to think as if theology is academic, it's for pastors and professional Christians. Christian living is practical, and so we should keep the two separate sections you know, apart from one another and see them as different disciplines. Theology is not practical, and practical Christian living doesn't have anything to do with theology. It's a strange dichotomy, and I would tell you it's an unbiblical one. You'll see churches who advertise themselves as being quote-unquote real or quote-unquote practical. And when I see churches using those adjectives, I assume part of what they mean is that they're anti-doctrinal. And the implication is that being doctrinal makes you stuffy and irrelevant. And sometimes it does. Can I get an amen? But not necessarily so. Sometimes it does, but not necessarily so. It's a strange dichotomy. In our denomination, this is one of the ways this works itself out. We, as we examine men for pastoral ministry, we spend 10 minutes, maybe 10 minutes, asking questions about his marriage and his kids. And then we spend three hours asking questions about his theology. That is dangerous and disproportionate. Because doctrine by itself isn't enough. You understand my concern here, I hope. We've all known people who have memorized the catechism but have no vital spiritual life with them, within them. I mean, I guess I wrote that and I said, I guess I don't, we probably don't know very many people who have memorized the catechism because we don't do that kind of stuff anymore. And it's interesting we don't do it anymore because we're, we're afraid it, it somehow defeats vibrant spiritual life. Strange. See, it does no good for you to be able to clearly articulate the doctrine of justification. As if quoting from a theological textbook, if you're not using those beautiful truths to massage your heart towards more joy, more peace, more patience with people, and so on. Let me illustrate this from the text. If you look there closely with me in these first seven verses, you'll see the first four verses are full of doctrine. Uh, one of my favorite um, pastors and heroes of the faith is Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in, in London in the, in the 20th century. Uh, I'll, I'll let you know, uh, it took Martin Lloyd-Jones 12 sermons 165 pages in the first book of sermons to get through the first little four verses. People don't preach like that anymore. There's so much doctrine. Look there, you have the word gospel, verse 2, which will become the theme of the entire letter. There's the connection between the Old and New Testament that's hit on there. The revelation of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and the implications of that. 
the, 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 he is the son of God and also the son of David. So the, the, the idea that he's both man and God. The resurrection is there. His lordship over everything, having ascended into heaven. And the giving of the Holy Spirit. All of that is in those first few verses. Dense theology. But when Paul expresses his desire for the Roman Christians, he uses his customary greeting there in verse, verse um, 7. Two simple words. Grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's desire for the people he writes his letters to and for us is an experiential grasp of the doctrinal content of the gospel. He wants them to know the content of verses 1 through 4, but beyond just knowing to the point that they're beginning to be changed by it. So the question for us becomes, are grace and peace abounding in our lives? Grace. Do you live as if it's God's faithfulness to you, not your faithfulness to him that matters most? Do you treat others as their sins deserve? Are you exacting? Or are you fundamentally patient and forgiving and kind with people because that's how God has treated you? Our gratitude to God and encouragement To other people, are they the tenor of your life? That's the measure of your knowledge of of Christian doctrine. Then peace. At the center of you. Is there deep anxiety and restlessness? Or are you lying down in green pastures? Are you, this is my wife's, what my wife used to say to our kids when they were little. And it's it's a great, just check yourself on this every now and then. Are you a peacemaker? Or are you a troublemaker? More and more, are you experiencing peace with God that leads to the peace of God that creates peace in your relationships with other people? That's the test of your orthodoxy, according to the Apostle Paul. And so we see that knowledge is not enough. Obedience is what Paul's after. But we also see here, if you keep going with me, the connection between between theology and obedience. That The goal is not just understanding, but obedience. But the obedience that Paul's aiming at is fueled by Doctrine, it is the obedience of faith, verse 5. The commentators say that means it's the obedience that comes from faith. The obedience that is energized by faith. So right doctrine is not enough. Paul is aiming at right behavior, but right behavior stems from right doctrine. That's a tongue twister. You can't say all I need is theology. And you can't say I don't need theology. Because obedience is the product of theology. Behavior follows belief. If you're struggling in some area of your life, the solution is not simply to behave differently. That doesn't work. Later on, Paul will describe what we all experience, that there's good that I know that I should be doing. Uh, That I, I, even though I know I should be doing it, I can't will myself to do it. And then there's bad that I know is bad. I know I shouldn't be doing it, and I can't stop doing those things. See, it's not enough to vow to behave differently. We need, we need to believe differently. And if you look careful at John chapter 5, for example, 1 John 3, which we read as an assurance of pardon, you'll see that God's command to us, God's command to us overwhelmingly is not behave. His command to us overwhelmingly is always believe. This is the commandment. What is it? That we believe. And we would all agree that you become a Christian by believing the gospel, but where we get messed up is that we believe that how you grow in your faith is somehow different than how you become a Christian. If you become a Christian by believing the gospel, then you grow in faith not by trying harder, but by believing the gospel more deeply. 
And I ran into this. I told you I would talk about my sabbatical a little bit. I ran into this during my sabbatical, believe it or not. And by, and by the way, the elders, the elders knew before I did that this is exactly what was going to happen. They tried to warn me, and I didn't listen to them. I thought they were dumb, which you should never do because typically they're not. Experiencing mild burnout uh, and wanting to come back and be different, that was my goal. I was going to be different. And I realized that my goal for the time off was a better me. A better me. And so my sabbatical plan when I turned it into the, to the men was full of self-improvement projects that I would finally have time to get to. I would finally be able to put all of my emphasis into becoming the better me that I know is inside of me just waiting to come out. Because a better me would make everything better. And I'm happy to report that after 12 weeks away, I didn't fix myself. I'm not a new and better version of myself. You might be sad to learn. But it was a wrong goal to begin with. The right goal was a better faith. Because here, follow this with me. If, if, if burnout is due, in my case, to overworking, and if I'm prone to overwork because of anxiety, I'm anxious because I don't believe. Right? I'm anxious because, because there's a lack of faith. Now, typically with me, it doesn't work to say, well, then just stop being anxious. That doesn't help me at all. All that does is now I'm anxious about the fact that I'm anxious. And you tell me I shouldn't be. And I don't know how to change. And that makes me anxious, too. And so I go to Matthew 6, which talks about anxiety. And there Jesus says the solution is to think about God differently. To know him as a father, not just theoretically, but to really know him, to experience him as a father who always provides exactly what I need. That's the only way to stop being anxious. So Sinclair Ferguson, who also taught me systematic theology, has written a great little book on sanctification called Devoted to Christ. And the premise, I think I have this on a slide uh, that's going to be on uh, the screen. Maybe we try to do this. I'm not sure. We'll see. I tried to give them a heads up back there. But I want you to just see this quote. I'll say it, and we'll see if we can get it up there. There, we got it? There we go. Listen to what he says. He says, define indicative indicatives. Divine indicatives, which are statements about what God has done, is doing, or will do, logically precede and ground divine imperatives, which are statements about what we are to do in response. Who God is, what God has done, is doing, and will do for us, the indicative, always provides the foundation for our response of faith and obedience, the imperative. So an indic these are tenses of verbs, okay? And, and an indicative statement tells you to believe something. An imperative statement tells you to do something. And what Sinclair Ferguson is saying is that in the Bible, and particularly here in Romans, indicatives always come first and then the imperatives. There's a logical order to these things. And so I'll give you a couple of, of examples. The next slide will show 1 John 3, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, that's an indicative statement. We also ought to love one another. The imperative comes, but only after the indicative. Or Colossians 3, the next, the next verse. As the Lord has forgiven you, indicative, so you also must forgive, imperative. So what I'm doing always follows what God has already done. God does something for me, and I, and I imitate what he has done in my life, having already received from him the very thing he's asking me to do. Sometimes it's reversed, but the logical order is the same. So Luke 6. You'll see that there. Be merciful. That's an imperative. This is something, this is what I want you to do. I want you to be merciful, even as or because your father is merciful. Indicative. Do you see how this works? 
Now get this. I geeked out about this a few months ago and told and was like, Ashley, can you believe this? I geeked out about this. And she was like, that's, that's great. But I'm telling you, uh, I was just in the moment. She wasn't. But this is really important. I want, you to hear, I want you to hear what I have to say. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, in the first 11 chapters of this book, there are 315 verses. Any, any guess how many times in those 315 verses Paul tells you to do something? Seven times. Seven times in 11 chapters, Paul tells you to do something for God. He spends the rest of the time telling you what God has done for you. And then beginning in chapter 12, the imperatives start to come, but always the indicative first. 11 chapters of indicative. See, that's not practical preaching. That's not 12 steps to a happy life sermon. Our obedience is the obedience that comes from faith. And i got to tell you, I struggle to want to make applications here. But as soon as I begin to make applications, I take us back into the realm of behavior, back to doing. So today I'm going to not do that. We are called to the obedience of faith. Obedience to Christ, which is the obedience of faith. But then secondly, and we got to move faster from here. The second thing is that in order to become in, in, in order to become obedient, we have to have, be changed at the motivational core of our lives. And the doctrinal content of the, of the letter does that as well. It doesn't just produce obedience, but it produces a new reason for us, in us, for obedience, a new motivation. Look at verse 5 again. The apostle says that his apostleship brings about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. And so we, we ask the question, what should the goal of our obedience be? What should be the why behind every what we do, what is the why? And the catechism very plainly teaches it is the glory of God. And that's what Paul means when he says here, for the sake of his name, God's reputation, God's glory. In other words, there's a connection between the way we live and what people think of God. And the world draws connections about who God is by watching us. That's what it means to be made in his image. You have Jesus' words in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men. Do you remember this? They may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So God is invisible. He's in heaven. We're here on the earth. And the way we live, the way we speak publicly about our faith, the things we post on social media, the way we interact with one another, and the relationships that we have, and the kinds of things that we're known for in our city, they all give God a certain reputation. And what the world thinks about him is largely due to what they see in us. Does that sober you? So Jesus says that we should always be concerned with his glory, that we should always be full of beautiful works so that people can see and glorify God. So the motivational core of our lives should be God's glory because the motivational core of God's life is God's glory. The chief end of God is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's true of him as well as us. God is God-centered, not man-centered. And so John Piper taught me this. Here's another quote for you that's going to be up on the screen behind me. God is central and supreme in his own affections, there are no rivals for the supremacy of God's glory in his own heart. God is not an idolater. He does not disobey the first and greatest commandment with all of his heart and soul and strength and mind. His delight, he, he, um, he delights in the, the manifold glory of his perfections. The most passionate heart for God in all of the universe is God's heart. In other words, in everything he does, his motivation is his glory. Now, just so you can be on the same page with me, let me show you some examples. And here we have some slides that are going to be behind me as well as I read these things. We're told in the Bible that he created us for his glory. Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. 
Bring my sons and daughters from the ends of the earth whom I created for my glory. We're told he raised up Pharaoh for his glory. I've raised you up, Romans 9, for this very purpose, to show my power in you that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He also defeated him for his glory. Exodus 14, I will get glory over Pharaoh and his host, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. He forgives sins for his glory. Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Why? For my name's sake. And I will remember your sins no more. Jesus answers our prayers so that the Father could get glory. John 14, 13, whatever you ask, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And his ultimate plan is to fill the earth with his glory. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk 2.14 So if God's name, if God's glory is foremost in the heart of God above all other things, then his name should be the most important thing for us too. Now that might seem obvious, but it changed my life as a college student going to an event uh, that talked about God's glory. And the, the, the verse from Isaiah 26.8, O Lord, walking in the ways of your truth, We wait for you, for your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. Of course, sin is wanting to be at the center instead of God, wanting to take credit for things that he has done. We are glory robbers, as Jonathan has already said. We pray not to you, Lord, but to our name be glory. Not your will, but mine be done. And that is the sinful core that has to be dismantled before we can claim the obedience of faith. And that is exactly what he has set out to do. So let me just finish with these few thoughts. That word glory means weight or significance. God's name refers to who he is, his attributes. And so to glorify God means that who he is is the most significant thing in our lives. What what he is and what he's done and what he's promised dictates reality for us. And it's both a practice and a posture. It's a practice that leads to a posture we look at God until we learn to start looking to God. We begin by looking at God. You you think about him more than you think about anything else. It's a spiritual practice. Taking in all that he has revealed about himself, all of the attributes of God, and you just focus your eyes on those things. One of the best books I've read this year is Jen Wilkins, None Like Him. Great book. You ought to read it. It's just about the attributes of God, that he is omnipotent, that there's no limit to his power, that he, he is immutable. He never changes his mind. He doesn't love you one minute and hate you the next. He doesn't make promises he doesn't follow through on. He is merciful. He's moved to action by our suffering. To glorify God is to look at all of those attributes and keep on looking at them until they become the measure of your reality. You look at the fact of your circumstances, but you don't stop there. You look up from your circumstances to him until who he is matters more and has more weight than anything else. You look at him to learn to look to him. His attributes, who he is, become your spiritual gravity. Yeah, today was a bad day, but God is good. See what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm I'm walking through the valley of the shadow of death, but he is with me and he never leaves me. He's able to raise me up out of this valley into resurrection. You look at God until your confidence and your trust lie in him and not in anything else. And you get your sense of peace and hope from what you know and who you know him to be. Life is full of problems. Life is full of problems. The solution is never a better you. It's never a better spouse. It's never better friends 
or a better plan or a better job or a better school or a better church. The solution is always God's power, God's love, God's guidance, God's faithfulness, God's work. You see? Glorifying God is not something you do ultimately. It's actually knowing there's nothing you can do. And putting all of your confidence and hope in him and trust in him and saying to him, your steadfast love is better than fill in the blank. And here's the thing. It's Paul's doctrine in Romans that gets you there. Grace. Grace magnifies God. It makes much of God. Moralism, thinking that what God wants is for me to do something for him and and putting all of my emphasis and energy into what I'm doing and me and my record and my performance and all of that, that, that's that's man-centered. That's not God-centered. Grace is God-centered. Grace means God does everything. Man does nothing. It's all of him. Salvation is not you and God each doing your part, right? And God does most of the work, and then you do a little to add to what he's done, and it's your part that makes the difference. And that's what most Christians believe. It's a big problem. Because if you believe that your faith saves you and that it comes from you, then you're glorifying you, not God. You get the credit, not him. No, 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 no. Any talk of works, even making faith into a work, makes a claim on God's glory. But salvation is by grace, through faith, and even faith comes from him, not from us. It's all of God. He does everything. We do nothing. Therefore, he gets all of the glory. And when that begins to come home to your heart, you'll live from a new place of gratitude and humility and joy for the sake of his name. And then lastly, when that happens, you're going to want to tell everybody about him. And that's the third point. Very quickly, because I'm out of time. Paul's doctrine turns you, lastly, into an evangelist. Look at his apostleship, the purpose of his apostleship, the obedience of faith for the sake of the name among the nations. The gospel turned Paul into a missionary, and it can turn you into one too. So Tony and Amber Ellswick in Nicaragua and Wade and Ali Savant preparing to go to Prague, both those families going out among the nations from us, that is the consequence of good theology. It is the fruit of a healthy church, and we're excited it's happening among us, and we hope it happens more. Amen? More, more, more. An army of kids from this church to go and take the gospel to the nations. The gospel is rocket propulsion fuel, not milk and cookies. And when it begins to come home to your heart, it puts a message on your lips. It's one of the ways you measure the genuineness of your love and wonder that you become so excited about what God's doing in your life, so in awe. There's so much beauty that you see in him that you literally have to tell someone. There is so much pride and not humility, so much consumerism and not gratitude. There's so much dullness, not joy among people of faith. Why is that? It traces back to bad theology. Only 3% of churches in the United States are growing through vibrant evangelism and mission. How can that be? 3%. It's not an evangelism problem. It's much worse than that. It's a doctrinal problem. We have a joy problem. We have a glory problem. Worship is the fuel of evangelism. No evangelism means no worship. So our repentance should start there. You can't commend what you don't cherish. You can't make much of God to others until you're making much of him in your own heart. You can't do that until you wrestle with grace. So the aim of Romans is to restore our evangelistic zeal by way of our worship. So as we work through Paul's letter and he begins to systematically dismantle our pride and unbelief, oh Lord, do that. One of the things that you should expect to begin to happen, one of the things that I'm praying for and you should pray for too, 
is that the consequence would be that it would turn you into a herald of the good news of Jesus Christ. There is no Christianity without evangelism. We can't be the church we believe we're called to be in the city without evangelism, but the solution isn't an evangelistic program. If only it were that easy. The solution is worship. The solution is joy, and that is something that God must give. And if you're a Christian, this is a really familiar place to be, needing something that only God can provide. Do you find yourself there a lot? Anybody else? Needing something that only he can do? Isn't that maddening? Isn't that frustrating? God, I need you to work, but only you can do it. It's a very scary but very familiar place for us to be. And I want you to know he sets it up that way. You want to know why? Because he will not give his glory to anyone else. Isn't that good news? It may not feel like it, but it is. And so let's pray. Can we pray? That's where we need you to meet us, Father, right there at the place uh, of our great need for joy in you. The place where we are full of, of worship, but for the wrong things. Where we are full of excitement, but excitement over things that, that are ultimately not satisfying and ultimately will not even last. Our, our hearts are dull when, when it comes to the most important things and are hyperactive when it comes to things that are of far less significance. That is the reality of our brokenness. And so we ask that you would come and change that in us. That you would come and change the glory center of our hearts to reorient us in the right direction toward you, that we would begin to look at you until we begin to look to you in faith, and that the result of that faith that you would work into us would be a powerful, beautiful obedience for the sake of your name in our city and to the ends of the earth, so that as we are people full of beautiful works, people will see, give glory to you, which is our desire. Our heart's desire is that you get glory. And so humble us before you. Put us at your feet. Nothing in our hands we bring. And, and help us to be overwhelmed. Work in us that we would be overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving and joy in all that you have done for us. And that a song would come forth. And that it would be a song that we shout in the presence of the nations of the earth, calling them to worship with us. That's the opportunity we have in these last moments in our service. And so as we sing now, unleash the joy that's latent in us. May these words bring honor and glory to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the Lord sends us out. He, he sends us to go, to love, and to serve. He sends us with marching instructions to go into all the world, uh, preaching and teaching, causing people to obey all that he's commanded and baptizing in his name. But see, what we do here, as he sends us for that great work he's given to us, he first reminds us of all that he promises to do. See, the indicative comes even before the imperative here at the end. So as you're sent now, hear these words. May they be the fuel. May they be the jet propulsion fuel for you as you go to love and serve him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.